you can't dispute that he had some remarkable ideas about how you create a democracy, but you also can't dispute that he was a racist. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. Ellis Coase's book, Race and Reckoning, From Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors, is an amazing book, an important book. I got to be honest, reading Barbara F. Walter's book and Ellis Coase's book back to back was a really intense couple of days for me. And as I was going through your book, I just kept writing down, tell us about voter suppression after Reconstruction. Tell us about this. Tell us about that. Because there is so much information in your book that is just not widely known that is ridiculously important. And I just want to get as much of that out as possible. So we talked a little bit in the last episode about how it's important to remember our history and it's important to know the history of the country that you live in, the United States in this case, and about whitewashing history. I think whitewashing is the appropriate term for not teaching about slavery or racial segregation. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us why you think that's important and why you chose to write a book like this? Let me even go back a step, because originally when I was going to do this book, it sort of grew out of a set of discussions between myself and the editor. And the first idea was that the book would be about why we ended up in 2016 uh, electing a president who, by many standards, is not fit for the job. What set of things in American history explained that? And as I was doing the initial thinking about and research for the book, it occurred to me that so many of those things had to do with race and with the original decision to divide our country by race, that the more pertinent book to do, at least for me at that point, was in effect a racial history of America. And that is what race and reckoning is. It's a look at decisions that we made when we could have made other decisions. And the first big one is the decision to have race-based slavery. I mean, that was not inevitable. I mean, in the early days, many of the Blacks, or at least some of them who were brought over from Africa, were not brought over as slaves. You know, they were made indentured servants, as the whites were who came from England and elsewhere, who were expected to work for a certain amount of time for no money. But then after six or seven or eight years, whatever the time of servitude was, you know, they got their freedom, they got some money, and if they were lucky, they got a plot of land or something. There was even a resident of Virginia, a guy from Angola who came to be known as Anthony. And at the time his servitude was over, he was granted you know, six indentured servants of his own and a small plot of land and became quite successful. And, and actually the, the irony is that one of his indentured servants had decided that his term of indenture was over and that he was being held beyond that and ended up in court suing Anthony and temporarily gained his freedom. But then Anthony later brought countersuit and won custody of the man again. And the judge punished the man by ordering him into servitude for life, basically ordering him into slavery. And so one of the earlier slave owners in America was a black guy who took his indentured servant to court and had him turned into a slave. But my point with this is that we could have kept the indentured servitude system and we could have treated blacks like whites were treated in comfortable situations. And we could have allowed them to work for a certain amount of time and then earn their freedom. 
We decided not to do that for a variety of reasons, ultimately having to do with how easy it was to make them into slaves. But that forced as a society to embrace slavery. And it forced us as a society to justify slavery. And it forced us as a society to codify the treatment of one set of people solely for racial reasons different than others. And, and beginning even with the first uh, Nationalization Act, which was passed in 1790. And it declared that in order to become a nationalized citizen in the United States, you had to be white. One of the almost amusing consequences of this was that for decades after that, you had people from Arab countries, you had people from India, you had people from Japan, you had, you had other people going to court to prove that they were white in order to become U.S. citizens. Really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> I mean, there, there was a headline and, uh, at one point, are Turks white? Because there was a Turkish guy, <laughs> you know, who wanted to be considered white. And that ended up being a, you know, a case that went before the courts and they ultimately decided that he was white. Yeah, but you had all of this nonsense because we had enacted race into our law as a difference, even at the same time where we had declared that people could not distinguish because of race. So I think most Americans would agree that Thomas Jefferson was one of our greatest citizens, one of our greatest presidents, one of our founding fathers. No question. Amazing writer, you know, really important figure, obviously, in our country. The reason that I'm here in California is because he paved the way for us to buy California. Right. But why don't you tell us a little bit about Thomas Jefferson's views on race? Well, the most definitive, I guess, sampling of his views on race are contained in Notes on Virginia, which is the one book that he published in his lifetime. And he talks at length about how Blacks are inferior to whites, about how Blacks are uglier than white people, about how Blacks smell differently than white people about how Blacks, unlike Native Americans or Indians, as he says, don't have any artistic talent, where he saw some artistic talent among Native Americans. Christ. And <laughs> this is his view from a, quote, scientific perspective. And he basically makes the point that Blacks are more similar to orangutans than to whites, and that that's one reason that they prefer white women to their women. I mean, so it's hard to read that because it's just so vile, but it's also hard to read it and walk away thinking that when this man wrote All Men Are Created Equal, he didn't really mean that. He meant all white men should have equal rights. Mm -hmm. And that's been one of the things that's bedeviled us is how to make sense of that. But it also contributes, because Thomas Jefferson is a revered figure, we prefer using the world, we in a sense. I mean, we prefer not to know those kinds of things about him. We prefer to think of him as this noble person you know, who thought that people were equal. I mean, the other, the other relevant fact about Thomas Jefferson is he had hundreds of Black slaves. And so he could not very easily argue that his slaves were entitled to the same rights that he was and keep them enslaved. So he had to find a way around that argument. And the only way around that argument is to argue that, okay, they were enslaved, but they weren't really people or that they deserve to be enslaved. Is it better to create a hagiography of Thomas Jefferson and forget that stuff and just let, you know, school children, especially at the, at a young age, believe that he was this great man and then maybe learn if they want to study American history in college that, you know, all men are complicated and Thomas Jefferson was no exception? I don't think it's ever a good thing to sell lies as truth because the lies are more 
interesting or more pleasant. I think we ought to even allow young children to see that great people can have great flaws. And Thomas Jefferson was one of these. Yeah, he was a man of his time and a man of his age and a man of his region. And he acted like one. So, I mean, you, you can't dispute that he was a great intellect. You can't dispute that he had some remarkable ideas about how you create a democracy. But you also can't dispute that he was a racist. What is critical race theory and why have conservatives gotten so much mileage out of it? In essence, critical race theory is a way of looking at the law and looking at policy and saying that simply saying you cannot discriminate against a group is not enough to eliminate racial discrimination. It's much more complex than that if you're taking it in all these ways, but that in essence is what it does. Yeah. Now, the problem is that it's become a big political issue and that certain politicians have decided to on purpose confuse critical race theory with simple acknowledgement of racial difference. And as a result, any treatment of subjects that touch on race, be it slavery, be it civil rights, is declared to be critical race theory, which is not true because critical race theory itself is a philosophy that arose in law schools and was being debated by law students and legal scholars, not something that was taken to kindergartens. <laughs> so the whole idea that people were teaching critical race theory in grammar schools and high schools and even in colleges is just patently ridiculous. But it became an easy symbol for people who are opposed to teaching about race at all to use that. You know, and in the same way that in the governor's race in Virginia, the whole question came up of the teaching of beloved which is a novel by Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winning writer Toni Morrison. And a part of Beloved is built around the storyline about a woman who kills her daughter rather than to see her re-enslaved. It unfolds in the 1850s during the time after the passage of the Recovery of Slave Act. I'm blanking on the exact name of it now. But which imposed upon northern states responsibility for helping slave owners recover their slaves if they escaped to another state. Was that the Fugitive Slave Act? The Fugitive Slave Act, exactly. Yeah, that was the, the first one was passed in 1850. And there was a woman named Margaret who this story is based on, who actually was, who actually did escape. And then when the people came to the door to try to arrest her and re-enslave her, literally stabbed and killed her daughter. So it's based on a real story, even though it's not the real story. And the argument of the politicians who didn't want to talk in middle school was that this kind of stuff was too much for frail middle school children to absorb and that they shouldn't be taught this kind of ugly stuff and that it should just be banned from the schools. But anything, if you're being honest about slavery, is pretty hard stuff. And you make a decision. Either you you can teach it or you can't. But if you don't teach it, and then you have holes in history. If you can't explain why we went to war against each other, what the war of the states was all about, without teaching something about slavery. Yeah, you, know, you can't teach why the South and the North were so different without teaching something about slavery. You can't even teach why the Republican Party came into existence without teaching about slavery. I mean, in the old days, when it was 
nurtured into existence. They used to call the Republican Party members Black Republicans because a huge part of their part of their program was to be for the abolishment of slavery. So if you're going to honestly teach why we are what we are, how America evolved, you can't tiptoe around and just pick the subjects that everybody agrees make white people look nice. This is a really hard question because I, I mean, as you described it, I had not really thought about this in these terms, but I don't know if I disagree that Beloved is not age appropriate for eighth graders. I, I don't think it should be banned, <laughs> but I, I really don't think it is appropriate for that age. But if you're you know, running a country where people only get educated to 12th grade, while it would be better to let them know the nuances of why the country is the way it is when they're a little bit older, it's important that they know that before they graduate from uh, publicly funded schooling. And so I guess the issue of when you teach this really difficult thing is a really thorny one. Well, that can be. But of course, the people who are opposed to teaching it aren't saying it's appropriate for high school. They right. just don't teach it. And I think one can legitimately differ on that. I mean, you know, to tell a personal story, I have a daughter who's now in college. We had a practice when she was you know, much younger. I would read to her as she was getting ready to go to bed. And that was how our, our customer went through the Harry Potter books. We went through other books. And at one point, you know, when she was, I guess, in middle school, we decided to read the Divergent series, which is interesting. And I found myself at one point in reading that book out loud you know, to my daughter. My wife is sitting on the other side of the room. Suddenly found myself in what was feeling like the beginning of a sex scene. <laughs> and I sort of put the book aside and I said, Lisa, maybe it's better you read this on your own. You know, <laughs> and, and so I understand there are certain things you may decide that you don't want a person to ex be exposed to at a certain age. But that doesn't justify the wholesale banning of books. Oh, yeah. The, well, this in a podcast called Book Society, we are against the banning of books. Right. I guess there's a difference <laughs> between banning a book and not making it part of a curriculum. And it doesn't even justify, in my mind, arguing that certain things should not be taught. And I think if you look at the argument of the people who are supposedly anti-critical race theory, they don't even understand what critical race theory is. And they're not even talking about critical race theory. They are opposed to teaching about racial discrimination. No, you're totally right. And I'm bringing a knife to a gunfight because I'm like making a good faith <laughs> argument about why maybe beloved is not age appropriate, but that's not answering the argument on the other side. I mean, the position is we should not teach anything that tells the truth about race relations in America over the last 300 years, or that paints a certain group, white people as being evil when it's going to be pretty hard to teach the history of the country without acknowledging that fact. No, I think it's impossible. And the argument they're making is if it makes white people feel uncomfortable, don't teach it. <laughs> That's not a prescription for an educated populace. This is a description for people who are schooled very early in self-delusion. Do you think that white people in America are losing political power? And I guess more importantly, do you think that they perceive that they're losing political power? No, I think that there are several fallacies in this whole argument that because the United States is becoming more, quote, minority, that means whites are losing power. I mean, first of all, there's long been a tradition in this country of reclassifying people once they achieve a certain critical mass. I mean, there was a time, and it motivated the Immigration Acts of 1924 and 1921. There's a time when the racial purity of the United States was thought threatened 
because of movements of Jews, of Southern Europeans, of Eastern Europeans, and the whole point of the national origins legislation that passed in 1924 was to make sure that fewer and fewer of these types came to America because we were maintaining racial purity in America and then want the Northern European strains diminished. And there's, there's even a, a great book in terms of what it was considered at the time called The Passing of the Great Race. And that was part of the dialogue around this whole discussion about racially inferior groups becoming part of America. So first of wow. all, a long history of that. Yeah, but ultimately those groups were decided they were just white and they became part of America. There's a phrase in, in certain Latin cultures, you know, mejoran de la raza, you know, bettering the race. How do you better the race? Well, you, well, you better the race by marrying someone lighter than you. And therefore you pass the goodness of white genes on to more and more people. In Brazil, there is a long tradition of making racial distinctions that we don't necessarily make here. I was in Sao Paulo at one point talking to a professor, and in the course of the discussion, she said, you know, when I was a child in the favela, I was considered black, or preto was the term in Portuguese. When I became a graduate student, I was considered a mulata, and now that I'm a professor, I'm considered white. People reclassify. They are, yeah. And people will, will be classified here. So in, in that sense, but, but also the very sense that whites as a group are losing power is ridiculous. I mean, the most important rights that we have are not rights that are racially allocated. You know, the right to an education, the right to certain types of health provisions, the right to enter various industries. Those are not racially allocated white rights. So even if more other people get those rights, then it doesn't mean that whites get any less of them. And in fact, we, you know, part of what we were talking about earlier about this whole coalition of whites who have power and whites who really don't, it's based in a delusion. It's based that white groups all have the same common interests. Many whites, particularly whites who are not making $10 million a year and who have to work for a living, have more in common in terms of what their demands need to be of government with poorer Blacks and poorer Puerto Ricans and poorer people of Mexican-American descent than they do with their fellow whites. So the very notion that whites are losing power makes no sense because then it becomes a question of, well, power to be and do what? I mean, power to become a white drug addict? <laughs> yeah, to even talk in those terms is to end up engaging in what seems to me to be a nonsensical dialogue. But the larger point is that, you know, there's been a lot of demographers who look at what's happening in the United States and say in the year 1940X, the number of minorities in this country is going to become larger than the number of whites. And people go, oh my God, my God, my God. No, that's not gonna happen. But also it won't happen because of the structure of our government. I mean, the structure of our government is not a democracy. It's an anocracy actually right now. <laughs> well, not even, not even making the anocracy distinction, but I mean, there are two senators who represent every state. Mm -hmm. This may have made a certain amount of sense in 1789 because the disparity in size of states was not that large. I mean, the largest state at that time was Virginia. The smallest state was Delaware. Virginia was only eight times the size of Delaware. And if you <laughs> included enslaved persons, it was 12 times the size of Delaware. So maybe it made sense they had the same representation. Well, yes, Alice, as a proud citizen of California, I can tell you that having less representatives than the Dakota territories does rankle on me a little bit. 
Exactly. You know, and I mean, California is 68 or 69 times the size of Wyoming. Yeah. But yet we have the same representation. And not surprisingly, California also has a larger proportion of minorities than Wyoming does. <laughs> you know, so even right. when we get to that point in 2048, if we're still calling the same people white and whatever, when whites become a, quote, minority, they will still have more political power than other groups unless we change the political structure of this country. And that's and that's a whole big discussion about whether or not that needs to happen. Unless Wyoming suddenly becomes a really attractive place for people to move. <laughs> One thing in your book that I thought was amazing, and we just talked about Andrew Johnson a little bit in the last episode, was that you made the point that he was probably a pretty racist guy, but he was a poor white Southerner. And the reason right. that he took sympathy with the Northern cause was because he hated the plantation owners on an economic level. And he was part of a unity ticket. I mean, I mean, Abraham Lincoln put him on the ticket right. because he wanted to have a unity ticket when he ran for office. And there was a, among Northern liberals at the time, there was a lot of hope that when he took office, he would be very sympathetic to the former slaves and would help the cause of reconstruction. Well, just the opposite, because he was basically a good old boy Southerner. And he was willing to accept emancipation, but that was pretty much all he was willing to accept. It's crazy. We, we talked about this a little bit in the Civil War episode that the war was fought essentially over the expansion of slavery. Right. And that a moderate position for a liberal in the North was, well, slavery is what it is. We just don't want more chattel slavery. That was like a centrist position. That was Abraham Lincoln's position, that he was not going to fight for the end of slavery in the South. I mean, he probably rightly figured that that would be so destructive that it'll end up leading to a, a war. I mean, it led to a war anyway, even with a more modest goal in mind of uh, fighting the expansion of slavery, which he was against. We were talking earlier about aggrieved white people making common cause with each other. Tell us a little bit about the KKK and the origins of that horrifying organization. Well, it literally came out of Reconstruction. I mean, there were a lot of people who were very uncomfortable with this idea that Blacks were given the right to vote and that Blacks were given rights that they hadn't had before. It was originally a secret organization, basically, but it was always an organization that was highly supported by the established white power structure. And both the KKK and the White Citizens Council came out of that same sense of whites that they had lost control, they had lost power, and that Blacks had gotten too much power. And interestingly, Recruitment for both of those groups was also driven by this myth that the end of emancipation and that reconstruction was all about allowing black men to rape white women. I mean, yeah, that that was that was <laughs> that was the, the myth that fueled both of those groups. You know, and they became very violent, particularly the KKK, because if you're protecting white womanhood, then violence is justified. This is something I think about a lot, is that you know, only in bad literature. Do characters wake up in the morning and decide to be evil? Yeah. Nobody thinks they're doing something that is categorically evil. And I don't think there are probably any members of the KKK that think what they're doing is wrong. They probably think exactly what you said, that they're protecting white womanhood or they're protecting their families against some perceived threat. They consider themselves good Christians. I mean, at one point, sure. their critical letter of the KKK, I forget which newspaper it appeared in, but a reader wrote back and said, you don't understand. These members of the KKK, many of them are ministers. They are people of God. They are good people. Yes, and, and Christianity has an unblemished record of peace and I, uh, tolerance. Well, again, that's a whole other <laughs> discussion. Yeah. But at the end of Reconstruction and the whole remaking of the myth of the South was very much intermingled 
with this idea that whatever had been going on in the South was basically God-inspired and was helping to restore people to decency and doing as God wanted them to do, including you know, slavery itself. Yikes. Yeah, you can, I mean, there's slavery in the Bible. So, I mean, yeah. maybe we shouldn't base laws on that book. Um, I don't actually remember why I wanted to ask you about this. I just have a note to tell us about the election of Rutherford B. Hayes. Well, that was the Great Compromise in 1878. And the election, basically, you know, Hayes lost the election by the Tilden, you know, in terms of the popular vote and probably lost it in terms of the electoral vote. But there were over 20 votes that were questioned. And so a commission decided to decide how those votes ought to be allocated, you know, joint members of Congress and of the Supreme Court. But there was a backroom compromise, which basically told Rutherford Hayes, who was a Republican, that if he went along with the end of Reconstruction, he would get the presidency. And Reconstruction, of course, was a set of policies that had led to the election of Black officials throughout the South, that led to the loosening of certain you know, restrictive laws and what have you. Hayes agreed to that. And of course, Reconstruction was enforced with troops in the South. Hayes agreed to remove all the troops to basically allow the South to govern itself. And the South very quickly went back to his old ways. I mean, they, I mean, under Reconstruction for a very brief time, that it, there had even been a Black governor in Louisiana. Tell us about the Black governor in Louisiana. Well, it happened because a Black person had been lieutenant governor. The governor was engaged in a scandal and a lawsuit. And, and so for a very short time, you know, the Black guy got elevated to the position of governor and then well, it was moved out again. But more importantly, there were Blacks at all levels of political society at that point because of the Reconstruction laws and laws granting Blacks the right to vote. After the Tilden Hayes Compromise, that all ended. And very quickly, you know, the Southern states essentially evoked the rights of Blacks to vote not formally necessarily, but through various policies, not unlike those that we are seeing today in terms of voter restriction. And all of a sudden, you know, Blacks no longer had to vote in the South. But it was a turning point. I think at one point I say in the book that it, it took basically another 100 years before we as a nation seriously considered the proposition of allowing African-Americans to be full citizens. And that was a direct result of wow. the Hayes-Tilton Compromise of 1878. When and how did the Republicans change from being the party of Lincoln and the party of emancipation and the party of the North to being the party of the South? And I won't call them the party of racism, but I will say that they're the party in which racists feel the most comfortable. How about that? It happened gradually. But for me, the dividing point is in the 1950s when Goldwater, before meeting of Republican leadership, basically said, look, we ought to go hunting where the ducks are. And what he meant is that forget about trying to get the black vote. We ought to just focus on the white vote. And this was, of course, you know, after the New Deal and, and after blacks who had been very, very faithful to the Republican Party until the 1930s began to leave the Republican Party, beginning with FDR, because FDR basically it was articulating policies that were trying to help all people, including black people. And Goldwater just decided to make it sort of formal. And he said, let's forget about trying to get black votes. Let's just go after white votes. And in subsequent years, the party doubled down on that with Richard Nixon and his war on crime, 
which they made it very clear was actually a war on so-called black crime and people who were involved in civil rights demonstrations and things of that nature. And it's continued forth where we are now. Yeah, it seems like when the government declares wars on things like crime or drugs or terrorism, there was never a war on opioids. <laughs> you know, like it's oh. always black and brown people who are, you know, doing the things like, I mean, there was a war on drugs. That was really a war on crack. Well, John Halderman made it very clear, who was one of, of Nixon's uh, key people, that the war on drugs and the war on crime were really wars on black people. They knew exactly what they were doing when they declared those wars. And that's part of why we ended up with a system of incarceration, which disproportionately imprisons people who are black and Latino over people who are white. But it was part of the Republican Party sort of deciding that they were going to leverage the white votes. I mean, when George Wallace ran in 68, he won several Southern states and the ones that he then win went to Republicans. And they said, hey, this is a gold mine here that by supporting civil rights, the Democrats have alienated Southern whites. We should swoop in and get those votes. George Wallace, for listeners who don't know, was the guy who stood in the door to prevent the segregation of a school in the University of Alabama. Not the nicest guy. Well, he actually was not a bad guy. I mean, I, I, I met him. You met him? I met him and had several conversations with him in his older years. You know, And the interesting thing about Wallace is that when he originally ran, he ran as a progressive and he lost. And he basically, and I don't know whether the quote is accurate or apocryphal, but he supposedly said, I'm never going to be out inwarded again. You know, he was true to that. Funny thing was, you know, in the conversation that I had with him when he, he was, you know, near death at this point, he was old. He had been injured and was in a wheelchair. And he said his best friend was his black caretaker. Now, yeah, who knows? But for him, you know, the racial demagogue thing was in large measure an act. It was an act huh. to um, appeal to white Southerners. So he's what uh, Barbara F. Walter would call an ethnic entrepreneur. Exactly. He realized oh. that's where the opportunity was. Man, I think one of the nicest things that, um, I don't know if this is one of the nicest things, but a thing that happened in my neighborhood recently is I have a neighbor who is super nice guy, but old white Republican, and he collects campaign signs. And in his mm -hmm. garage are campaign signs for every Republican that has ever run for office. And he got new neighbors recently, and they're black. And as soon as they moved in, he took down the Wallace one. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's, a, that's a good neighborly thing to do. Yeah, sure. yeah, I didn't, didn't say anything. I just noticed it when I walked by, and I was like, that is solid. Wallace made himself synonymous with racism, but then look at Lester Maddox, who was the governor of Georgia at one point. I mean, this was a guy who owned a chicken restaurant and he rose to prominence because he ran two guys out of his restaurant, two black guys who had come to integrate his restaurant with a gun. He ran them out of his restaurant at gunpoint and all of a sudden becomes a viable candidate for governor. When, when was this? This was in the 1960s, you know. I feel like this could happen today, too. <laughs> I mean, as long as it wasn't like overtly racist, but I mean, like Republican uses gun to defend small business. I mean, you could run on that. Well, it was overtly racist. They weren't threatening, but they just wanted a chicken dinner. Yeah. And they were trying to integrate his restaurant. And he said, no, that's not going to happen. And he chased them out at gunpoint. Why do you think, I mean, this is, these are very complex issues that we're wrestling with. And we've, you know, we've gone back and forth. You know, you've, you've set me straight on a few things. We've examined a few of the same things from different angles in this last hour. And I think that the moral of the story is that race relations and history in general are very complex. 
And uh, you write that you think Americans just as a, as a people have some trouble with complexity. Um, why do you think that is? Well, we like simple issues. We like black and white in the sense of once you get an issue that has various shades and that has complexities to it, that doesn't work very well in the soundbite world doesn't work very well in, in a world of Twitter where you have to say what you want to say in a very short number of words. It doesn't work in a society that's become more and more accustomed to social media, again, which is a medium which depends on people who have a relatively low attention span for complexity and for things. And if you say something short, punchy, and polarizing, you're much more likely to get traction in that media. And so it makes it difficult for us to deal with complex problems in the society. Ellis Coase, I want to close by asking you the question I ask all the guests, which is to recommend two books to our listeners. It would probably be the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. I spent a lot of time in South Africa when they were going through their transition. And it's interesting that Barbara Walter uses South Africa as a parallel of a country that avoided falling into anocracy because there was compromise there. I think it's a very complicated story and, and, and it's actually more complicated, I think, than Barbara gets the credit for, you know, for Bain. And I think that Prime Minister de Klerk was not so much a hero as one who recognized the inevitability of change, you know, and sort of went along with it. But I think it's the hopeful book because Mandela was a hopeful and, and gracious person. And it's a book that gives you insight into the sort of thinking that allows us to avoid disasters. So I, so I think it would be Nelson Mandela's autobiography. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time and your insight and your book, which I really enjoyed reading. And when you have another book, we're going to have you back on. Thank you. You take good care. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. The episode you just heard was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair 2022 has passed, but the Miami Book Fair 2023 is coming up in November of 2023. Javier Zamora, Ben Matlin, Jesse Hempel, David Hoffman, Robert Sutton, Mike Imperioli, Jake Ward. These are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami. From Sunday, November 13th to Sunday, November 20th, please visit Miami Book Fair for more information. Follow at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. This is why we don't have flying cars. Because we had to spend so much human energy arguing about this nonsense. Some lawyer spent part of their career going to a court to argue whether a Turkish person was white or not. Absolutely. So, I mean, Jesus.